This is NPR's Life Kit. I'm Janet Ujung Lee, one of the producers of the show. I've been eating Korean food my whole life. I grew up with it. I crave it on a daily basis. But it wasn't until the pandemic, when I moved in with my mom, that I really learned how to make Korean food. I had to ask, okay, how do I make kimchi when there's no Napa cabbage at the grocery store? What brand of seaweed should I get? And really, how am I supposed to follow your recipes when it just says add a pinch or a handful of every ingredient? Just like that, so much of Korean cooking is rooted in practices that are never documented, but passed down in families. The dishes that many of us grew up with are the Korean food that came over in the 80s. I always thought that was fascinating, and that is why I think in the Korean American community, there's a staunch like, desire to preserve only and not innovate. That's cooking columnist Eric Kim. You may have seen his recipes in the New York Times. Eric is also the author of a cookbook called Korean American Food That Tastes Like Home. It's a book he wrote with his mom, Jean, when he moved home to Atlanta during the pandemic. <laughs> That's Eric and his mom making milk bread. You can find the recipe in his book. Eric says his cookbook isn't just about Korean-American food. Instead... This book documents the discovery of my Korean-Americanness and my attempts and my, my failed attempts to define it. Because what I really believe is that, you know, our experiences as Korean-Americans are so multiple that, and the diaspora is so vast that any attempt to define it is going to, you know, dilute it. Understanding what it means to be Korean-American or being Korean in America, it never gets easier from the identity crises to our constant effort to reconnect with Korean culture. And of course, this all looks different, even between Eric, who has roots in Atlanta, and me, who spent most of my life in the Midwest. But if there is one thing in common, many of us in the Korean diaspora encounter our Korean-Americanness through food. When you go back in time and you kind of pick up the pieces, like, and it's not, I didn't have to go back that far. It was really just my family and our dinner table. But it was a great nexus point for unraveling these um, intricacies in our identity and ultimately, finally, um, celebrating Korean-Americanness and Koreanness is is really such a relief and it's just a huge sigh of relief and I'm so grateful for it. This episode of NPR's Life Kit, an intro to Korean-American cooking. Eric and I will walk you through pantry essentials, quick fix recipes, and how to start making food that feels authentic to you and your loved ones. Whether you're craving food that tastes like home or interested in trying a new cuisine, Eric says it all starts with this first step, which is our first takeaway. Build your Korean pantry, get those like three ingredients, just start there. And don't worry about having to invest in a long list of items. As Eric says, Half of the Korean ingredients, quote unquote Korean ingredients, are actually just ingredients you already have. And so it's not that there's like this vast array of exotic ingredients. It's actually just that everything is um, right there in front of you anyway, and it's always been there. You just have to know how to use it. Let's dig into specific ingredients. In the pantry section of his book, Eric introduces the three tangs, which are fermented pastes and sauces that often come in tubs. Tangs, like other fermented Korean dishes like kimchi, are made to last, to be preserved over the hot summers and long winters in Korea. So tangs come in generous portions, and they will last you a while. Our second takeaway is to try tasting and cooking with different tangs. Especially if you're new to Korean cooking, 
Eric recommends starting with tuenjang, which is often translated to soybean paste. It's spelled D-O-E-N-J-A-N-G. And I'm, I've been just trying to get people to use it because it's so idiosyncratic and actually really hard to describe in flavor. Tuenjang is commonly used in tuenjangjigae, a stew that's often cooked with beef or pork, tofu, and zucchini. Eric recommends being a little more experimental, though. Keep a tub in your fridge and try adding a spoonful of tenjang to different dishes. I started using tenjang, for instance, to glaze fish, and I started using it in salad dressings, and I was like, oh, damn, this, this stuff rocks. The second jang is ganjang, which is a Korean version of soy sauce. It's usually a little sweeter than the more common Japanese ones. Eric is a big fan of kukkanjang, which is a Korean soy sauce specifically made for soups that adds this deep, savory flavor to clear broths like in dumpling soup or rice cake soup. And trust me, even if you have soy sauce in your pantry, kukkanjang is worth the investment, especially if you're a big soup person. The third jang is gochujang. It's a paste made of gochu, which are Korean red peppers, and thickened with rice. Gochujang is used in some mainstream Korean dishes, you may have had it in bibimbap, or sometimes in kimchi fried rice. Or you may have tried gochujang marinated pork if you're big on KBBQ. But Eric and I prefer the more flaky, powdery version of red pepper spice called gochukgaru. Gochukgaru is often used hand-in-hand with gochujang, but some home cooks like Eric just use gochukgaru in recipes for a lighter texture or a clear broth. Eric also has multiple recipes that start with making gochukgaru oil or butter on the stovetop. You bloom it in butter, it's kind of this incredible caramel sweetness, and it, it, the smell leads you to what the next thing should be. And keep in mind that gochukgaru burns real quick. So if you're blooming it in oil or butter or following Eric's scrumptious gochukgaru salmon recipe, make sure to lower the heat when you start smelling the spice kicking in your kitchen. Korean home cooks love balancing the spice from red peppers with something a little sweeter. When it comes to sweeteners, Eric loves meshilchong, which can be a little trickier to find. Meshilchong is green plum syrup. My mom actually calls it meshilekis, and I have no idea how to romanize that. It's a, it's a syrup made out of these Korean green plums. This is a very particular taste that I remember from my childhood, I'm sure you do too, but it's like these... Um, they taste like a mix between plums and green apples, and but they're so aromatic, and there's like really good gummy cam- candies um, flavored after them. My mom also uses meshichang, this fermented green plum syrup, in kimchi instead of sugar. Combined with ganjang or soy sauce, meshichang is also used to marinate sweeter meats. You may have tried it in kalbi or bulgogi. Oh, and you can even make yourself a warm or cold drink by adding a spoonful of meshichang to water for a little treat. When you're on the hunt for these ingredients, you might as well check out a Korean or another Asian grocery store in your area. Once you're there, Eric says you could also check the product label to choose one from a Korean or Korean-American brand. A lot of things, these things, yeah, you can find at your, your local um, American grocery store, but I think by going to the Korean one, you're sort of opened up to a different way of viewing your pantry as a thing that's just as easy to fill with Korean ingredients by going to the grocery store that's equidistant to the the one you normally go to and people call that my grocery store it's like i couldn't find that my grocery store but it's like you should just change your idea about what my grocery store is what if it's just what if there are just many different kinds of grocery stores that you go to to pick up these amazing flavors and these amazing ingredients if there isn't a grocery store near you that carries these ingredients you can also look online at korean american-owned chains like h mart that now do offer delivery 
Now that you have a short list of pantry items, you may be wondering if you could just grab one of them, like doenjang, and substitute it in recipes that use gochujang or ganjang. Here is your warning and our third takeaway. Be thoughtful about substitutions. There are ingredients that you can't replicate, and that's the realization I had. Gochujang, gochugaru, doenjang. Those three things are very... There are flavors that aren't replicable, and I think that's such a... Instead of, like, feeling, you know, halted, I think it's important to see that as a wonderful, like, examination of how amazing that flavor is. But Eric adds... Everything else can be substituted, like the fish, the, the, the vegetable, the scallion. You don't have to get the teppa if you can't find it. Like, you know, teppa is this king scallion, which it's, it's, just, it's just a larger scallion. It's not a leek, but anyway, my point is there aren't, there aren't rules, but in order to truly arrive at an understanding of another person's cuisine, it's important to know like where you can substitute and where you can cut quarters. And what matters to me is that people are understanding that tenjang and gochujang and gochugaru, they all are very different flavors and very particular and idiosyncratic. So as long as you use the exact spices and seasonings, like don't use miso instead of tenjang, you can substitute the proteins and carbs, like swapping out spam and kimchi jjigae or stew for canned tuna, or using rice cakes instead of noodles. Now that you have your ingredients, what to make first? That brings us to our fourth takeaway. For your first Korean cooking project, try making kimchi. Now, if you're a Korean-American or Korean listener, you may be wondering, why start with such a labor-intensive dish when you can just buy some from the grocery store? Eric says making kimchi really shouldn't be too hard, especially if you're starting in small batches. And it will teach you how to cook with Korean spices. I know it sounds like the hardest thing, but it's actually because so much of Korean cooking is around this conception of preservation. So when you learn how to make kimchi, which is really not that hard, once you do it, you kind of learn the basics of Korean cuisine, which is at its core about extending the life of food. The possibilities of kimchi are endless. In Eric's cookbook alone, there are more than 10 different recipes that include his mother Jean's Napa cabbage kimchi. There are recipes that use radish, cucumber, and even beets. As Eric mentioned, kimchi has an insanely long shelf life. So once you have a batch, you can snack on it or add it into any of your meals. Which brings us to our fifth takeaway. Explore ways you can incorporate Korean flavors into your everyday cooking. Eric says, another way to do this is by using more seaweed. Eric specifically recommends kim, which is a roasted and seasoned seaweed that often comes in little smaller packs. Kim is just like, it's in so much of my food because it's the way I would cook when I was little. I would just crush kim into everything and I have this memory of the, the seaweed slicked fingers. Kim is also a key ingredient in one of Eric's favorite dishes, keranbap, which literally means egg rice. It's a simple pantry meal and anyone can whip it up in 10 to 15 minutes. Keranbap is great and really all you do is you fry an egg and then you put it over white rice, usually leftover white rice, honestly, and then sesame oil, soy sauce, and I do a, an entire packet of kim because I just don't think it's, it's not that much. It like totally wilts, kind of like spinach, and, and it's so good, and it adds that nuttiness, and on that kim is salt already and sesame oil, so you're just fortifying those flavors, and I realize that that's what cooking is. I, I like to fortify the things that are already there instead of trying to like add too many, too many other things to it. 
As someone who grew up with Korean food, I love a quick fix meal like kerambap with some kim and kimchi. But when I'm cooking for other people, there's this weird pressure to serve something that's a little more intricate that feels really Korean. It's something Eric's been thinking about a lot in his career and while writing his cookbook. I'm curious, how do you kind of work through any sense of pressure or the weight to make something that's quote-unquote authentic, but also pushing out what's yours and your family's? Yeah, I think what I really had to do was leave that behind. I think the recipes in here are incredibly irreverent <laughs> to like traditional or, you know, more, more common modes of cooking these dishes, but ultimately to arrive at a reality, which is that even modern Korean cooks in Korea are really experimenting and challenging the norm. And I think people used to um, call out that I used vegetable oil, or I did it, that I didn't use vegetable oil in my cooking, but the only reason is that my pantry has olive oil. That's the only reason. It's not that Korean Americans all over the world are using olive oil. It's actually just that mine, my pantry has that. And my mom's pantry has that too. And she's not sitting there in her Georgia kitchen worrying about what all the Koreans are going to think of this food that she's feeding her family. I used to be a little embarrassed that I have no idea how to cook with Korean ingredients. But like Eric says, building a Korean pantry has let me incorporate more of these flavors into my everyday cooking. Like I add a bit of gochugaru in my tofu stir fry, or I sometimes include a spoonful of gukkanjang to microwavable dumplings. Now, you may be wondering if that even counts as Korean American cooking. But whipping up different meals with a hint of Korean ingredients is how I learned to appreciate these flavors. I love this notion of trying to explore the pantry and also demystify it in that I think people are afraid to cook with these Korean ingredients and um, I have a very complex relationship with that because I, I really want people to see how they, these ingredients can open up their cooking actually. Like Eric says, the heart of Korean American cooking is relearning the ingredients in your pantry and welcoming in more flavors that taste like home to you. We covered a lot, so here's a quick recap. Takeaway number one, build your own Korean pantry. There are a handful of spices and seasonings that just aren't replicable. So commit to them and invest in them. They will last you a while. Takeaway number two, try using different tangs. These fermented Korean sauces are a critical ingredient in Korean cooking. They're used in so many of Eric's recipes, of course, and you can also explore cooking them in different meats and veggies and wherever you wanna add them. Takeaway number three, be mindful of substitutions. Korean pantry ingredients have very distinct flavors, so try not to substitute those for something vaguely similar in your pantry. Takeaway number four, if you're new to Korean cooking, try making kimchi. It will add to any Korean dish, or really any meal, and it's quite easy to make. You could also make one big batch and share it with other people. And takeaway number five, welcome more Korean flavors into your everyday cooking. Try incorporating these pantry ingredients and kim into your snacks and quick meals. You may be surprised to find new flavors from your Korean-American cooking journey. For more LifeKit, check out our other episodes. I hosted one on how to get into tarot readings, and we have another one on how to organize your pantry with Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen. You can find those at npr.org LifeKit. And if you love LifeKit and want more, subscribe to our newsletter at npr.org slash LifeKit newsletter. This episode of LifeKit was produced by the lovely Claire Marie Schneider. Megan Kane is the managing producer. Beth Donovan is our senior editor. Our digital editors are Beck Harlan and Dahlia Mortada. 
Our production team also includes Audrey Wynn, Andy Tegel, and Sylvie Douglas. Special thanks to my mom and my friend Jeremy Pesigan, who always cooks with me. I'm Janet Ujang Lee. Thank you for listening.